Hello and welcome to the Tucson Climate Chats podcast. This November 18th recording, our 14th overall, comes to you from occupied Tohono O'odham homelands in the Ward 3 neighborhood of Campbell Grant. As always, I am your host, Nick Spinelli, an AmeriCorps VISTA member working in collaboration with Arizona Serve, Prescott College, and Changemaker High School to demonstrate how national service can address both climate and poverty in the urban core of the Sonoran Desert. Our guest today is Catalina Ross, Energy Program Coordinator with the Sierra Club. Catalina, you were one of my very first interviews for the Tucson Climate Project. It's a pleasure to reconnect. Welcome aboard. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, totally. So I booked this interview um, not only because I think you have incredible perspective that's worth sharing, but also selfishly because you've been involved with a lot of really amazing work and I haven't gotten to hear about it in the last few months. So I don't know, where should we start? Bring me up to speed. We talked on August 19th. That's how long it's been. And in COVID land, I feel like that's forever. (laughs) It is. (laughs) Yeah, where do we start? What's been going on in Sierra Club world? Let's see. Well, and we weren't on a podcast when we talked either. No. So <laughs> I don't even, I'm not, actually the podcast didn't even exist the last time we really? talked. I don't even think we launched our first episode yet. No. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And now we're on episode 14. So holy moly. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, then I feel like we can kind of just start at not not at the beginning, but um, <laughs> we can we can talk about some things that happened um, right before I talked to you too mm. earlier in this year. I feel like 2020 has been a big year for energy um, in Tucson and in Arizona because we've got like um, we've got <laughs> okay TEP uh, the Tucson Electric Power and APS, Arizona Public Service. Um, Those are Tucson and Phoenix's utilities. Um, They both have rate cases going on this year and they both are creating um, integrated resource plans, which are 15 year plans um, that they take two to three years to make. So um, both of those have both of those processes going on. And then we also have um, a process happening at the Arizona Corporation Commission that's on um, rewriting the energy rules or regulations um, for utilities, which has um, mm. involved looking at a lot of a lot of different um, and somewhat nuanced things. Um, and then on top of all that, we have also had Tucson Climate Action that has taken off this year quite a bit. Um, so that's like the, the recap, but, um, I don't work as much on APS. Um, I work mostly on Tucson. I'm from Tucson. Um, and I was hired as an organizer here, um, partially because I'm in the community and I know these people here. And you know, a lot of people here, just speaking from the (laughs) Tucson climate project perspective, Catalina has given me oodles and oodles and oodles of contacts, which I'm very grateful for. But anyways, yeah, you know some folks. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I I love Tucson and I love our our people here. And so this is part of my passion is like um, trying to see Tucson go renewable. Um, And uh, anyway, 
back to TEP though. Um, so they began their IRP, their integrated resource plan, which I'll refer to as an IRP um, last year, or sorry, yeah, last year, 2019, uh, they made a draft IRP. And then in 2020, they, um, they came out with their final IRP after an extensive, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, <laughs> after an extensive advisory council process. I was going to say review process. Close enough. Yes. Neither of us are English majors. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, the advisory council was something that Sierra Club got to be a part of. And um, we, we were able to give them input on um, a few different things. But uh, one of the major ones was on the finances of coal in Arizona. Um, and uh, with a report that we got from an independent company called Stratagen um, Energy Consulting Company. And they, uh, they actually had around like 25 advisory council members and um, took input from all of them. We had tons of meetings, et cetera. So we were able to uh, collectively actually push uh, the boundary of this IRP um, quite a bit. And it didn't come out exactly perfectly, obviously. Um, you know, these things are processes that take time. But um, we, we made some pretty big steps on that, including um, TEP's commitment to um, get out of their coal plants, <clears throat> all mm. of them, and not um, do any more, uh, acquire any more gas assets, no new gas. And by um, gas, you mean natural gas? We like to call it fracked gas. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. But, um, which it is, but uh, mostly they, yeah, they did um, make two big gas purchases right before this IRP though. So um that's why they were able to say no new gas. So it's a little mm. bit of a, you know, a spin there. But um, they also, uh, speaking of um, of the rate case, they also um, were trying to justify these two purchases in their rate case. So a rate case is basically where they um, say we're going to raise the rates and we're doing it to justify whatever costs we've incurred up to this point. And then they like have to go through a semi trial like process with a judge and everything to justify that. And then people can intervene stakeholders or legal entities or um, utilities um, and all of those types of parties did intervene. And uh, so that went, um, largely over 2020, also begun in 2019. But um, they ended up having significant um, public input too, which was part of what I uh, organized uh, was in January. And that was before COVID. <laughs> so, <laughs> before <laughs> COVID, I don't understand. I, I, hasn't COVID always been with us? I know, I don't remember. <laughs> 
<laughs> they um yeah so the, we had we, we were able to actually get people in person and um, commissioners uh, for Arizona showed up in person to this wow. rate case. Those um, are the days. Yeah. And our big like argument in the rate case was that making these purchases for um, of fossil fuels for TEP was an imprudent decision. They had basically like gotten one unit that um, was because it was super cheap. It was the Gila River gas plant unit two. Hmm. Um, sorry, I might be saying that wrong, maybe unit one. But anyway, um, it was super cheap. They didn't really need it. They could have um, been investing in renewables and um, instead they bought it. And, um, you know, gas is something that's, if you build new gas, it's, supposedly good for 30 years at least um, hmm. and yet gas is going to be outcompeted in the market by 2035 they project i would i would personally guess sooner than that because it's already um, solar has already dropped so much the price of solar um, and so that was one of our arguments and then the other was that um, tep should be uh, investing in a just an equitable transition for the coal um, that they have taken part in coal system, if you will, right. um, including like Navajo generating station in Northern Arizona um, and future um, closures like at um, the Four Corners station, which uh, generating station, which is also a coal plant that uh, was one of the ones they committed to exit in their portfolio, preferred portfolio of their IRP. So um, I know this is a little jargony and I apologize, <laughs> but um, let me know if, I, if anything's unclear. No, no, but, no. I think you're doing a good job of like very slowly, very succinctly breaking it down for listeners in the sense that if you don't have a background in energy and policy, right, like I mean, you know, there's still times where I listen to people who aren't you and it's like all of it just goes woo right over my head. And it's like, <laughs> okay, and wait, okay, you like you mentioned just transition, for example, I'll ask you about that in a moment. Um, but yeah, continue. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'd love to talk more about that. Um, so, so we argued that they should be putting money and resources into a just and equitable transition. Um, and then um, the process continued. Uh, <laughs> utilities had the opportunity to uh, clap back and they did. And they uh, were able to get themselves more time. Some uh, minor shenanigans went down. Um, and then- <laughs> Minor they, shenanigans. <laughs> yeah. And um, the, uh, essentially what ended up happening between that and COVID is the timeline got extended from what should have been finished in 2020 into 2021. Mm. Um, and actually, I shouldn't say that officially because there hasn't been an extension issued, but we're past the date when a timeline extension would have been able to be finished in 2020. Oh, so, okay. Got it. Uh, yeah, by the powers of deduction, 
we have <laughs> uh, begun planning the, the last of the work on the rate case in 2021. Um, and so that's, that's what's happened up to now with the rate case and the IRP at TEP. And um, what steps we're still looking at happening um, are going to be the judge for the rate case will make a recommended order um, to the Arizona Corporation Commission. And then she, um, and then they will vote on how they want to pass this rate case or, mm. or not pass it, whatever the case may be. Right. Um, and so we're waiting on her recommendation for that, the judges. And then for the IRP, the commission will also have to do something called acknowledging an IRP, which is the IRP is not a binding legal document. It's, it's a planning document, it's informative, um, and it's there to tell them, um, here's what we're looking at for the future. Whereas rate cases look backwards, IRPs look forward. Mm, okay. And, um, and so depending on how strong the IRP is and um, its financial implications and, and all sorts of other considerations, the Corporation Commission will choose to either acknowledge it or not. And so we're going to be looking at uh, the acknowledgement, which um, at this point we are pro-acknowledgement of TEP's IRP, um, given the forward steps it's made. And, <clears throat> and we're still waiting to see what happens with APS's IRP. So I won't talk too much about that one, but at this point it's super weak. Um, and then the other thing about the IRP, what was it? I had one more thing I was going to add to that. Well, anyway. It's okay. When we come back to it later, we're building the hype for it now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so listeners will be very familiar by this point with the Hatch Act and how I am constrained from endorsing or offering my opinion uh, personally on any sort of you know partisan political activity, legislation, what have you. Um, but to give sort of a super simple summary uh, or to ask for sort of a super simple summary from you regarding why the Sierra Club is pushing um, uh, for some of these changes, especially with these local you know, utility organizations, let's bottom line it. And even, even if it seems really implicit, let's make it explicit. You know, why are we trying to push for what's called a just transition and away from things like coal and natural gas? Yeah. Those are great questions. Um, and actually, I would, I would divide it into two questions. One is, why are we pushing for renewable energy over coal, period? And then two, why are we um, pushing for a just and equitable transition? So firstly, coal is, um, as many people know, super pollutive. Um, you know, it, it, is, it contributes to... Um, poor air quality, higher asthma rates, um, higher, uh, there's data on higher asthma attacks. Um, it is a, it releases um, carbon dioxide among other greenhouse gases. So it contributes to 
um, climate change. <clears throat> and so uh, all around gas is just not um, good for the environment or good for health. Um, however, now we're also seeing that gas is no longer economically viable either. Hmm. Um, because the price of renewables has come down so drastically, even in the last year, but in the last five years, um, and the costs of batteries as well for storing that renewable energy has also dropped precipitously. We are seeing uh, the market actually favor renewables at this point. And it's not always a, uh, a full like, renewables are cheaper than fossil fuels because natural gas or fracked gas <laughs> fluctuates in its price. It goes up and down um, and it's on a downward trend, not on an upward one. But um, so we're looking at seeing uh, a full conversion from economically speaking from coal being cheap, gas being cheap, to now those are ex more expensive resources relatively. Um, so those are the reasons, um, some of the reasons why we are um, promoting renewable energy over, um, over fossil fuels. Um, but also uh, we believe that it's part of a greater uh, shift in the economy to a green economy in the US. Um, it creates jobs to invest in current technologies and developing technologies. Um, and it uh, is something that we can um, continue to grow rather than trying to prop up an old dying field or industry. Right. So that's that's why we're why we're promoting renewables. Um, I think it's yeah it's something that a lot of us greens are on the same page about. But um, that's that's the basic element of it. And then for just an equitable transition, this comes into the economic aspect that I mentioned. So a lot of these um, a lot of these fossil fuels are extracted in really harmful ways to communities. Um, it's, it's not just to the earth, which is obviously terrible because it's oftentimes um, not remediable in our lifetime, but it's also super extractive to communities. And where systems have been built up around the industry of coal or the industry of frack gas, um, there, there is an entire, um, there's an entire driver, economically speaking, that becomes dependent on. Mm -hmm. And so as you remove those resources or, um, or processes, like let's not forget that mining is a huge part of coal. Um, and even fracking itself as an industry is part of gas. Um, so as those industries um, become more regulated or less um, ubiquitous or close in a big way, like in the case of Navajo Generating Station, 
they leave in their wake an entire community that was dependent on that resource and on the economy that it provided and on all the jobs. And in some cases like in NGS um, for generations. So you have um, you know, three generations of coal miners for the Cayenta mine and next to it, three generations of coal processors for the Navajo generating station. Um, and these, these might've been in the same family, um, things like that. And so um, you, what the green industry, <laughs> what the green nonprofits um, have done in the past has been to put the environment above all else, the priorities of, of what they feel is important environmentally. Polar bears. Endangered yeah. species, not to say those things aren't important, but that's what I thought when you just said that. I see that full page spread in that geo <laughs> of, well, whatever, I'll let you fill in the blank, but continue. No, totally. That's, yeah, those are called, we actually call them poster species in ecology. Mm. <laughs> polar bear does look pretty good on a poster, I won't lie. <laughs> yeah. And I do love polar bears, just so everyone out there knows, like, oh my gosh. Oh, you these know. are wonderful. Right. Yeah. I don't want to pick, I'm not trying to pick on polar bears. <laughs> and, right. and jaguars, too, are jaguars extremely curious. Local example, what am I doing? Place-based education, and I'm talking <laughs> about animals that are 3,000 miles away from here. We have the Northern Just Jaguar Project relevant. in our backyard. Uh, turtle, if you're listening, I'm sorry. Anyways, um, <laughs> yeah, you were saying. Oh, yeah. So, so anyway, um, yeah, we, we, the, the big greens, as you might call them, these, these nonprofits um, have historically not been the best at considering communities um, when they're going for their conservation, which, you know, is a good effort. It's a noble cause. Um, but as uh, we are coming into more self introspection in this, um, in, in, I don't want to call us an industry, but <laughs> in, in this uh, field of um, conservation and sustainability work, we are learning that um, some of the relationships with communities have been extremely damaged um, and that that's for very valid reasons. Mm. And so that's, that's something that um, just an equitable transition attempts to uh, rectify and go forward in a new spirit. So it says that we need to make sure that um, communities are not left in the lurch by this exit, drastic and sudden exit from the economy. Um, and ways to do that might be, um, for one, holding utilities that have extracted accountable. Um, so they have to uh, rec reclimate uh, like places that they have polluted, like mines, or I, I don't know if you know this, but in Arizona, there are hundreds of abandoned mines that have never been reclaimed. Hmm. Um, it sounds <clears throat> like um, just a brief tangent. You know, I didn't know that. I mean, it doesn't surprise me about Arizona, but I spent two years of my life living in Southern California um, on what was once ancestral Yohaviatam lands, but now what is Big Bear Lake, Big Bear City. 
anyway, spent a lot of time down in the desert um, in Joshua Tree National Park and did a lot of wandering around off trail, which now that I think about it may have actually been prohibited. Oops, sorry. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> Uh, it might have been prohibited for a good reason because very frequently I would come across these huge uh, fences just in the middle of the desert and you'd look over the edge and there'd be this big old pit and then there'd usually be a sign either about abandoned mine and or a long list of all the things in that abandoned mine that could hurt you or kill you if you stepped on them, breathed them in, fell into them, etc., and at the time, I remember thinking, you know, very naively, just like, wow, that's awful. Like, I can't believe more people don't know about that. And I, you know, forget about it as soon as I get back in the car and drive up the hill. And they're here, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. I haven't come upon one like that, like you have. Um, yeah, thankfully, sounds... NPS at least put signs up. Um, there have been other places I've traveled, uh, especially in Nevada, where, you know, interior Nevada, you know, sometimes you're hiking around and it's just like, huh, that hole doesn't look natural. <laughs> like, yeah. And you wonder how it's legal to leave that, to just leave it up and leave it. Um, it no, it's, it's completely insane. Um, it's so destructive. And those, those mines pollute water for generations to come. Mm -hmm. um, it, and, and the ground. So it, it makes infertile soil. Um, trace chemicals, of course, um, can be heavy metals that make their way into anything that's growing there. Um, again, the waterways, like that's, it's really bad. And then that's, that's not even to account for the things that, like you said, you can breathe in. So that come off the, the top. Um, right. There was literally a fence I saw and I'm paraphrasing. It was like, if you go beyond this point, we can't guarantee your safety. And it was one of those like looking around like, whoa, like, where am I right now? You know, and it was like, all right, I guess I'm going to walk in the opposite direction. The, the boring dystopia. Uh, <laughs> have yep. you heard that? No, I have not. <laughs> yeah, that's the hashtag. <laughs> oh, man. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. It's, it is dystopian, especially as we look at there not being policies in place to actually um, go back and have to clean these things up. I mean, I still am holding out hope for the future, but, um, but yeah, as it stands right now, that's kind of just how it is. And, um, and so, but yeah, pushing for that type of policy is something that we do is like utilities should have to provide money to these tribes to um, help them move on economically they should have to invest in renewable energy um, to replace the old energy that they're closing that's cited for favorably like in their communities. Um, it should have to clean up uh, any or contribute to the, to the reclamation of any mines that are getting closed such as the Cayenta mine. Um, and then like in terms of like human uh, forward measures like doing job training programs, um, um, you know, helping relocate um, workers that are able and willing to be relocated into a new job so that they're not just mm. out the income. Um, and these are not things utilities would do on their own. <laughs> 
obviously. Um, they're, they're very financially driven. So um, anywhere they can save a penny, they generally tend to. Um, but as we uh, move into the future, <laughs> as always, um, we are trying to spread this message throughout, um, throughout the public as well as um, in regulatory processes because it's kind of a philosophy that is not considered by a lot of people when they're thinking about where their power comes from. Like TEP used to burn coal in Tucson um, at the Sunt generating plant and they closed those coal units and replaced them with gas. Um, and so a lot of Tucsonans, I believe, don't necessarily know that they're still getting power from coal from three different coal plants right now. Mm. So they're getting it from the San Juan coal plant, which is in New Mexico. They're getting it from the Four Corners coal plant and the Springerville coal plant. And that's still way too much coal. <laughs> Right. And to get like way, 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 way down in the weeds, probably more like tall grass at this point for just a second. Mm -hmm. Do you have any idea, um, you know, which parts of town specifically are on that coal grid or is it really just everyone? You know, I'm thinking about where I am in Ward 3 and it's like, of course, I have that suspicion every time I look at my air conditioner. But hmm. yeah, I'd be curious if you knew. Yeah. So um the way that the electricity grid works is that resources feed into it and it all becomes part of the same big system. Oh, got so it. Okay. I should nobody's... know that. <laughs> oh, no, no. It's a, it's a question that makes sense, especially because there are substations within TEP's grid. So you might wonder, you know, how is that station getting fed or something like that? But yeah, it all, it all gets mixed together. Um, electrons don't discern and uh so everybody's getting some some solar yeah and some coal and a lot of gas got it so because i'm a visual thinker and maybe this is an absurd analogy but it was i don't know it made me laugh when i thought about it if my air conditioner was a printer instead of an air conditioner it would print out this little pie chart and then <laughs> all the different proportions would be on there of the things that you just named Yes. Huh. Yes, I okay. have actually printed that pie chart before. There you go. <laughs> imagine yeah, if every imagine if all of our uh, utility devices, our washing machines, our dryers, all of that. Imagine if they had that little cute, colorful digital pie chart on them. That yeah, that's oh, a, that would be. I if can, people I can, had to look at that. Yeah, I can hear manufacturers just wincing as I say that. <laughs> mm -hmm. but, yeah, they prefer their Energy Star. Yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> um, I I think you know, but that's the, my my public campaign basically is is letting people know, hey, this stuff is still getting used, and it's still super harmful to the communities that it's coming from and to the earth. And even though it's easy to just um, you know turn on your appliances or turn them off to save energy or look at your bill and see that it says that some amount came from uh, renewables it's still happening like and you can't just turn a blind eye to that um, and so 
oh, and I also forgot to mention that there is wind energy too, a little bit of it, and mm -hmm. um, and some large scale like solar farms and things like that. Um, and there is a little bit more of renewables coming on uh, to TEP. Actually, it's it's a significant amount more coming in the future um, that they are um, investing in. But um, right now, they're looking at a total exit from coal in 2032, which, as we know by the I International Panel IPCC change yeah <laughs> ipcc i was about to say that but then i thought i'd go for it um top 21 right now, close enough yeah yeah they um have said that that we need to be um below max of 1.5 well below max of two but then they lowered it degrees celsius so 1.5 to 2 was their original um, uh, range of degrees, but that we needed to be between that amount of raise in average global temperature by 2030 in order to, as they say, quote, avoid the most disastrous impacts of climate change. And um, for context, we are already at one degree past it. So, um, so we're already halfway to the most catastrophic. Um, and we um, are not inhibiting the gas that's getting purchased and used. Mm. That's actually still growing fracked gas. Right, and so just and again, to make the implicit <clears throat> explicit, when we talk about one degree, 1.5 C, two C, we're talking about global average temperature rise, right? Right. Got it. Right. Cool. Which can make the, you know, the calculations a little bit difficult. Like how much does this city contribute to that in that time frame? Right. Um, and those are some of the maths that are going on um, at this, <laughs> at the city of Tucson, um, in, at the University of Arizona, um, and and some of that made it into TEP's um, IRP report as well. Hmm. I feel like at some point in time, I'm going to have to do. Maybe it could even be a roundtable. I'm going to have to do an entirely separate episode, just as a primer on like what global average temperature rise is. Because I think I've mm -hmm. talked to a lot of people in the past who have been like, "Oh, like it's only going to be two degrees like warmer." where I live a hundred years from now, well, what, you know, that's not a big deal. Like it'll still get cold or whatever. Right. And like you mm -hmm. said, we're one degree C above the historic baseline. And I mean, I don't know, folks in Tucson, y'all uh, live through that summer uh, this year. I think we all know, even now, like I'm looking at my thermostat in my kitchen. I think it's forecast to be like 89, 90 degrees today. It's November yeah. 18th. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> and That's we warm. did we broke <laughs> records this year both in tucson and in phoenix um right. july was the hottest month on record until august which then became the hottest month on record so yeah we're talking about real change and it's not just i think it's important to keep in mind too though that it's not just about human comfort which will absolutely be impacted um you know, there are people who cannot withstand those two degrees, even though they sound low. Um, there are people in hot summers that can't 
literally can't. But then there are countries like in in uh, that are entire island nations in the ocean that those two degrees will cause enough sea level rise to actually um, significantly cover their land mass. And so those countries are looking at getting wiped out, like literally. Right. It just gives an entirely new meaning to theft of land when there's the direct theft, like what happened in this country where people are displaced at the barrel of a gun or with pen and paper. And then there's the more insidious version. It's just amazing to have to articulate this out loud, but like, but then there's the more insidious version where the actions of, I'd say a relatively small group of people or entities, right? You know, having that kind of impact globally where you're on an island and suddenly you don't have your land anymore. Yes, you're right. That is, that is absolutely a form of colonialism and and um, white supremacy. Really, yep. Um, these are these are countries that have the power to stop something like that and absolutely right. choose not to, and not just choose not to, but um, turn you know turn their head or or put their head in the sand when such a thing is brought to their attention, um, which is of course abhorrent. Um, Yep. But also, also the, the two degrees also, um, it's not just humans. Um, you know, our ecosystems are not, people like to say ecosystems are fragile. And, and the truth is ecosystems are resilient. They will rebound in some way or other, but they will change. And they change in ways that they don't recover from. So as you get higher temperatures, you have animals that now that live in a certain temperature range, like imagine reptiles, right? They have very specific um, temperatures at which uh, they will go into hibernation or they will um, begin their reproduct reproductive cycles. Um, and so something like temperature, even within two degrees Celsius is a huge difference for them. Mm -hmm. So with this narrow, um, a window of temperatures that they can operate within and each animal has its own they have to go now and move and find that temperature range from where they used to have it so they move and generally it's northward and upward but at some point you get as north as you can go and you run you, out of northward and upward yeah you get to the top of the mountain and there's no more so <clears throat> this is all animals, it's, which is also causing increased competition for the resources among the animals. And then we have these like imaginary borders that we put in like a border wall on our southern border. And now any animals that are climate refugees, you know, in addition to all of our people refugees can't move forward. And um, and they can't find those ideal conditions for their for their living. So we look at increased extinction, um, and and that's only talking about the land. Like the ocean's a whole nother story. So yeah, right. I think it's a it's an incredible humanitarian crisis when we look at uh, climate change, um, and it's an extinction crisis which we're already in because of course, like I said, we're already at that one degree. Um, or past it, and that's um, already had a significant impact on our on our animals, and with indirect effects, of course, too, like 
uh, weather systems, increased fires, hurricanes, etc. So it's all systemic. And yeah, I think people don't always realize like you need to look at it systemically. Right, which I think, uh, well, I can only speak for myself, but I think at least, you know, growing up and especially kind of becoming more aware of these things as I've progressed throughout my 20s. And yes, I turned 26 uh, on December 12th. So I'm a youngin for all you uh, <laughs> folks listening Happy out there. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks. But like, you know, so clearly I have a long way to go. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's an, I should say it's an intuitively appealing idea, at least to me that like, yeah, our brains aren't really wired to think that way in the same way that humans really struggle to comprehend exponential functions in the sense that we're pouring all this carbon into the atmosphere. And when we start talking about how X amount of carbon can lead to Y amount of warming and how those two numbers aren't always the same. If carbon is being banked and stored, how long does it take to dissipate, et cetera? You know, I think people are very focused on what's right in front of them. And so at least for me, like, I think I understand the numbers and there's still times even in my own life where it's like, it's so hard for me to conceive of change on that scale. Mm -hmm. And then you scaffold in that layer of anthropocentrism, right? Where it's like, whoa, and you're saying that we're doing all of this. And I think people hear that sometimes and they go, well, I can't be responsible for that. And absolutely, there's a discussion to be had about how corporations and larger entities, you know, have a massive, I would argue, disproportionate share of that burden, especially when it comes to admissions. No, I don't have numbers on hand right now. Um, I should probably look those up later. Anyways, but what I'm trying to say is like, yeah, it's certainly not a pass or an excuse, but you know, I've been, I have a degree in environmental science. I've been talking about this stuff for 10 years since I was probably in my mid teens. And there are still times where it is utterly bewildering to me. Um, yeah. Crazy. This, anyways, long-winded way of saying the scope of the problem <laughs> is really big as you're doing it a very is. good job of articulating. <clears throat> no, it is. Um, and and yeah, it, even with um, my ecology degree, it, it's still, um, it's difficult to even as a human, even fathom large numbers. Like they've shown that in studies that we can't even really understand what a million is. Like it's, <laughs> it's something that we, you know, as the numbers get bigger and bigger, we, they don't mean a whole lot to us. Mm -hmm. And so it's natural that we would go into a place of, of, um, pushing away the responsibility or, um, or guilt-driven ignorance or, um, you know, just, just not even um, wanting to, to even look at it because we know that um, this isn't something that we can address as an individual. But um, I would argue that three things. One, that's where science comes in and they give you all of the context for it. And two, um, you need to look anyway, you have a responsibility to, and you know, people, um, they don't have to lose hope. This is something I often say is like, I've, I'm, 
it's my job to have some hope for people and <laughs> to keep them, you right. know, like understanding that it's not a lost cause yet. It's changed for sure. And there are some, um, some things that can't be undone, already done. Um, but there is still a lot that we can save and a lot that we can do. And then third, um, I feel that uh, the, the, and we didn't even get into the Corporation Commission, but um, I think that that's where a lot of this effort that we can still take needs to happen is, is the regulation side of it. You have um, the Corporation Commission making rules for the energy process and a lot of um, Arizonans don't know anything about our Arizona Corporation Commission. Um, and we do that education is a huge part of, you know, our campaign. Um, but there's only, you know, <laughs> it needs to be more widespread and people need to be holding their, um, their elected officials accountable. Um, you know, the Corporation Commission is one place. We were um, able to see a good uh, package of rules passed. It wasn't everything that we wanted, but uh, there's going to be a carbon standard, um, carbon emissions standard for Arizona, um, as well as energy efficiency standard and, um, and more stringent planning process. Like I told you, the IRPs are not, um, are not something uh, that's binding legally. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be changes to, to the way that the IRP uh, planning process is done so that there's more accountability. And then there's also going to be more just and equitable uh, transition measures in there. So we're going to see that passed, hopefully, um, next year with the new commission, because three of our commissioners will be the same. So um, they have helped craft this. And well, two of them have one voted against it. So we'll see uh, what happens um, with the leadership. But uh, we're hopeful that it's going to pass. And this is the kind of thing that should be happening, you know, in every state. Uh, not every state has the same type of commission that we do, but but you should be looking at your your utility regulators, whoever they may be, your state legislature, your city uh, legislature, and um, and of course take federal action as well. Like you, you always have access to your senators. You can call them um, your representatives uh, generally. Um, tend to be more attuned to your specific area where you live too. So there are a lot of things, uh, you know, places where you can take that type of action. And, um, and in Tucson, that's actually made a big difference. We, we had our climate emergency declaration passed this year, mm -hmm. which was a huge milestone um, in the fight against um, our own contribution to emissions as a city. And they are, um, they in this declaration committed to making a plan for um, climate action for the city. So uh, that's supposed to be a holistic approach where they um, talk to all the departments of the city. They do a full uh, survey of emissions that are being put out um, by, by, you know, different uh, departments in the city and and then they're supposed to also take interim actions on climate um, in the meantime while they work on that plan. So 
um, that's, you know, this is something that was very grassroots driven. And I feel like if people, uh, if people really do um, have their heart where they say that it is, and they want to stop climate change, and they want to um, stop um, environmental injustice, such as the, you know, situations happening where where coal plants are sited, um, that they just that they just need to get active. There's right. there's still a lot that they can do. Right. So, you know, thinking about starting to wrap up here, I certainly can't ask you to point to pe. I, I can't ask you to point people um, to specific, you know, say policies or individuals that they support. But I do think I can ask you you know, for folks that just generally want to learn more about this on their own time, are there any resources out there, whether it's related to energy or whatever else that you would point to and say, it's like energy for dummies, right? Uh, folks like me who don't know a lot and are like, you know, they need something simple to break it down for them. Do you have any suggestions? Um, I'm not sure if I'm not supposed to point at us. <laughs> No, you totally could. That's, uh, you know, I just, you know, I, yeah, you can make whatever recommendations you'd like. And we have, well, we've got a state energy team. And the reason I point to us is that I haven't seen um, a lot of other energy specific work um, Mm. uh, being focused on by other groups. There's a lot of climate work and you can get involved with uh, any number of climate groups. There's the, um, Youth Climate Coalition, the Elders Climate Action, um, and and then there are various like grassroots, like really small, on the ground groups in Tucson doing like environmental justice work that can you know always um, use support from our community. But um, but in terms of the energy, we do have an energy team um, for the state, and then we have. Um, we've got work going on in Tucson. You can always contact me. Feel free to put my, my email, but it's catalina.ross at sierraclub.org. Will do. And then, um, yeah, I, I think that, uh, we have educational resources and ways to get involved. Cool. So folks listening, do some digging and make up your minds. In the meantime, last question that I have for you, um, you know, what fills your cup up? What, you know, we talked a little bit about hope earlier. What pushes you to keep doing uh, the work or what, uh, you know, what buoys you along as you keep going? Um, This is going to sound so cheesy, but. um, (laughs) No, you're good. But I honestly, I, I have been, um, really uh, pivoting my attention into environmental justice work and social justice uh, um, collaboration, you know, the network and understanding the intricacies of the interconnectedness of that with environmental work and energy work and energy equity. And as I delve further into um, ways to have um, have true partnerships with other groups that don't necessarily have the exact same goals. 
um, but ways that we can be mutually um, helpful to each other, the ways that we can fight the big uh, fossil fuel systems together in addition to their driving system, white supremacy and, um, and corporate um, greed and <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. I have been finding um, just the most inspirational people who are, you know, have had really tough circumstances and continue to fight um, for what they believe is right and the change that they want to see in this country and and the world ultimately. And that's something that, you know, I think, you know, if they can do it, I can do it. And if they are still hopeful, I can stay hopeful and continue working toward this. Um, I, 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 yeah, I can't even overstate how amazing some of these people are. You, I highly recommend going and checking out, um, you know, folks on Instagram who are environmental and social justice warriors, if you need to fill your cup. Well said, not cheesy at all. And thank you for the push too. you know, this episode, I think is the first in a while where things like, and I know at the risk of them sounding like buzzwords, right? When things like white supremacy and systemic racism and settler colonialism come up, I appreciate the push because I talk about those things. I feel like every day in my work with the climate project, and yet they don't always make it on air. And like you said, you know, not only are they happening, you know, it's really on folks who have the platform and the ability uh, to talk about it, to get that dialogue rolling or continue it and to address those things and ultimately begin to dismantle them. Um, yes. I'm about it. I appreciate the push. Um, anything else for the record before we close up shop? Um, I don't, you just made me think of something that was... No, um, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to say that I think it's really incumbent on um, white people to really take an, an inward look. I know this is a yes. little bit more retweet um, of what you just <laughs> said, but, but to really, yeah, like really, uh, if, if you're not getting it, if you don't quite get it, like continue, just continue trying to um, at whatever stage you're at, just continue um, working on, on your understanding of what's happening in the world right now and and understand that with the platform that we have, with the privilege that we have, it is our responsibility to dismantle these systems. Um, it's not something, we created it <laughs> and we have to take it down. Like we have to transform um, the way these systems are working and that the fossil fuel industry is just one part of it, one iteration of this really ugly beast of a driver we have going not to be too negative, but, um, but it, yeah, no, I think that it's real. important That's to have some self, <laughs> some self responsibility for it. Accountability. Yep. And I think about that every day as a white person doing this work is, you know, none of these stories are my stories anyways, right? It's not even really my work in the sense that I am just compiling and sharing what other people are doing but it's how I'm doing that as a white male, someone that, well, I was going to say traditionally, but no, even in this moment, checks about every imaginable box there is for membership in the dominant culture, whether that is gender, sexual orientation, uh, being able-bodied, whatever it might be. 
And so with that privilege and the enormous power that I think my voice by default carries inside of this system and this culture, how am I using that uh, to speak out against it and wherever I do see injustice? And spoiler alert, it's everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that you're doing that. And I think it's a great example for folks to follow. And especially as you model having this platform, I mean, anyone can start a podcast too, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And that was the thought was that, hey, like, you know, granted, we're living through a pandemic and I think new podcasts are a dime a dozen and the tool is still there. And if we use it correctly, you know, why not give it a shot and see what sticks? And here we are 14 episodes in and, you know, now I'm getting to interview interview folks like you and that's pretty exciting. That's progress. (laughs) thanks yeah you bet all right i think on that note like i said we're going to close up shop that concludes today's chat about climate poverty and service here in tucson arizona you can find new episodes of the tucson climate chats podcast on fridays at anchor.fm forward slash tucson dash climate dash chats or on spotify and most other major audio distributors like the show, comments, questions, compliments, concerns, smart remarks, feel free to email me, Nick, as always, at nspinelli, S-P-I-N-E-L-L-I, at arizonaserve.org. And gratitude to each and every one of you for the opportunity to do this work, as well as support yours. (laughs) 